Welcome to the podcast sponsored by the book, When Money Goes on Mission, Fundraising and Giving in the 21st Century. We're here today with Cynthia Bauer from a ministry called Capenda, one that uh, I personally am quite excited to be involved with uh, through the Westwood Endowment where I serve as a trustee and how I've gotten to know this wonderful woman in this great ministry. I'll let her tell the story of uh, the ministry and her involvement in it. But first, let me say welcome, Cynthia, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Rob. I appreciate it. So, so you want me to start yeah. by telling you about Compenda? Tell us about Compenda and a little bit about yourself and why and how you got started with Compenda and what Compenda does. Sure. So Compenda for the children um, transforms harmful beliefs and practices around kids with disabilities and transforms them into ones that save lives. And we do this through working with community leaders, with families, with people affected by disabilities, because the problem in places like Kenya and other countries around the world is people with disabilities are often believed to be cursed by witchcraft, by demons, or that it's a punishment by God. And obviously those kinds of beliefs translate into abusive practices, which sometimes have even resulted in death. And the reason Cupenda exists is that I was told when I was back in grad school and doing my research on the coast of Kenya as a wildlife biologist, um, I was told that if I had been born in Kenya, it's possible that I would have been killed because I was born without my left arm. And I was raised to believe I could do anything and be anything I wanted to be. Although my father, when I was born, did believe that I should be taken to faith healers. So that was a part of my experience as well. My dad was a really young Christian. He thought that was the way God's glory could be revealed. However, my mom, who was the daughter of a Baptist minister, thought perhaps God's glory could be revealed in other ways. And said, Boy, is that the her. truth. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's one of the stories that I share when I'm in Kenya, which is where this all started. Um, and Kupenda, by the way, means love in Swahili. And it's actually the word for love that's an action, and it's a continuous action of love because so many children with disabilities and adults with disabilities are isolated and alone. And I think that loneliness is probably one of the worst experiences that we can all experience as human beings. And so many people think more about the clinical care for people with disabilities, which is also important and also something that we do. But we realize that if you can't change the attitude towards people with disabilities, it's not going to matter how beautiful of a hospital you have or how amazing of a special needs school you have if children are locked in back rooms or tied to trees and told that they're demonic. And we've seen that when we change this attitude, when we change this belief system, when we give them practical ideas and they come together as community leaders in their own villages, in their own families, and come up with practical solutions, they're actually effective and long lasting because we believe strongly in investing in the community to work with the people in it as opposed to depending on us. So we don't build large buildings. We actually train community leaders and then they build the large buildings. They build the schools. They go in there, they advocates, and they know that this is their work and we're affecting lives for not just now, but for generations to come. Families that once were told their children shouldn't exist, that were suicidal because their husbands had left them and they're bringing up these kids with disabilities on their own. They have said, I was gonna commit suicide before we knew about this before I joined a parent support group, which is one of the outcomes of the work that we do. And she said, now the very people who told us 
that we should kill our children are now taking care of our children so I can go to work. And so that's just one example of the kind of success we're seeing. Well, thank you. Uh, Cynthia, we're doing this podcast uh, in the midst of a worldwide lockdown and the COVID-19 crisis. Hopefully the podcast will last longer than the crisis and uh, a couple of the issues that I wanted to talk with you about in terms of the ministry uh, will uh, 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 will also be a part of this podcast. But before we uh, go into that, uh, I think it would be very instructive for uh, our listeners and viewers uh, and readers uh, to um, to understand how you're adapting to the crisis, how the ministry on the, in the field is adapting and, um, and, um, where you see things going, uh, right now. So let's talk about, um, something that's on the minds of everybody that comes to this podcast. And that is how do I fund what God has called me to do? And, uh, or how do I, uh, strengthen our organization? Uh, and let's talk about uh, what you're doing in the field, but also what you're doing uh, with your donors and what the response has been. Okay, sure. It's a lot of questions. Um, so the first thing I should probably make sure people understand is what our current model is. We do do some direct support. We pay for school fees for kids. We do emergency surgeries, but our model is really based on one day workshops where we train specific groups of people. It started with training pastors in churches because we realized that people were were actually going to their pastor for magical healing instead of going to the doctor. We support praying for healing. We support all of that, but we don't support it as a, in place of medical intervention. And we believe that kids should be accepted as they are and that healing isn't always going to happen. It's actually more rare than it is common. Um, so then we also we started working with pastors, saw that change. We work with traditional healers. We work with government officials and we work with the families themselves in workshops geared around their particular area. So with pastors, we talk about what does the Bible really say about disability? What does it say the church's role really should be? Questioning some of the cultural norms that they hold to that people with disabilities should just be healed and that's it. And if they're not healed, it's because of some kind of sin or, or something like that. And with traditional healers, also usually one of the first people they go to. And so what we've been doing, especially over the last three or four years, with supports of organizations um, that we're just so grateful for that Rob is connected to as well. Um, we've been able to transform people's belief systems in such a way that these people who were doing really abusive rituals or they had colleagues that were doing it are now actually going into communities, training them and telling them what the true causes of disabilities are and what we should be doing and what their legal rights are and where to go. Our whole model is based on people gathering. And then those people gather and then they train more. And so if you actually looked at our model, it looks like an infection model really now. Mm. And so we're like, okay, as soon as they close the schools in Kenya, uh, just like here, um, many people, when they're, they're closing the schools, they're very nervous about what about those kids who depend on the food at the schools for their livelihood. And so for us, it's the same issue, only this is a developing country where the average income in our the county that we're focused on is less than $2 a day, if that, and they're in very rural communities. And so whatever is affecting people here, you can imagine what that must look like in a third world country, and then imagine that you have a disability as well. And so 
we know that they're not allowed to gather either. They're also living like we are right now, which is more challenging in a group that's so communal. And so what we're doing is saying, okay, what can we do? How can we, how can we right now within days change our model from one of gathering to one that's using mobile phones? Because 90% of Kenyans have a phone, even if it's just an analog phone, they still have a phone. Our community leaders who have been trained all this time have actually had an investment in them in such a way that they actually have the ability and the skills to help these families right here and now. And they know who they are in their communities. So we have about 150 leaders and each one has been asked to identify 10 children with disabilities in their community that they can keep following up on. And that means they're gonna call them. They're going to use what we're sending them. Uh, we have about half of them probably have smartphones, the community leaders. We're sending them resources so they can read it from their phones. We've developed, we're actually fast tracking some of our resource development, which is things like, what are the causes of cerebral palsy? How can you take care of someone in a wheelchair at home? Keeping in mind that sometimes the children that we've found when they're at home and are, have to use a wheelchair are left on the ground just laying there all day, which is going to cause their muscles to contract and be permanent, be even more disabled than they already were, uh, bed sores and so on. So keeping them moving, sure they know how to feed children who have trouble swallowing because there are children we have known of that have choked to death when they've been at home because the families didn't know how to do it properly so we're fast tracking our resources trying to make it a very mobile app based project now lots of phone calls and our director and many of our staff members are actually literally going into the field they just went out today and delivered food to 22 of our most vulnerable families because not those who are already poor, which is more than 70% of our families that are below the poverty line in Kenya, those who weren't that way are now losing their jobs. And in an industry that's dependent on tourism, some of the parents are pastors that are no longer getting their offerings. So these people need this emergency support right now. And because of our community leaders, we're able to do it. We're able to get out there and educate and provide and hopefully keep these kids as healthy as possible during this pandemic. Your leader in the field is, um, I'm, we're getting some feedback. We're having uh, issues with COVID-19 on our uh, bandwidth and such, but your leader in the field is named Leonard. And yeah, uh, so I, I actually forgot to tell you about that whole part when I was talking right. about how Kupenda started. So Kupenda started, like I said, when I was told I would be killed in the in Kenya if I was born there, but I was doing my research and every day I passed this school that had started for children with disabilities. And the person who started the school is now um, my co-founder and director in Kenya, and that is Leonard Mbonani, who is a special needs teacher. He was doing assessments and then worked for a research institution geared around disability. And he is a close friend, he's like a father to me, and he and I are the co-visionaries. Unless you have a co-visionary friend, it's hard to explain what that relationship is like. Like he is awake as, at least as much as I am. He's probably awake even more because he knows these kids personally. He sees them, he has it on his heart. And he's actually just, um, as of a year ago, he just stopped chemo treatment. So mm. he's also a cancer survivor. So in the midst of COVID-19, we also get concerned for his safety. I'm telling him when we're talking about people going to the field, that does not mean you. Um, the people that are going to the field, they do have personal protective equipment. We actually were supplied with that just yesterday so that our occupational therapist, our driver and the community, and they can go out and they're also giving the families, not just food, but they're giving them things like soap and hand sanitizer and explaining to them 
the COVID-19 response and also making sure they understand what that means for them as people with disabilities. And our director in Kenya has said, in the midst of this pandemic, we will not let even one child be lost. Yeah. These children are our responsibility. <clears throat> well, uh, thank you for that. And, um, and um, the inspiration for all ministries that are facing uh, how to adapt to the reality of COVID-19. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to have you speak about how you're adapting uh, your field work, even though your model is to bring the children to you and uh, and then bring the training out. Uh, and bring how, children how, out of isolation too. Yeah, we're gonna see a, a lot of creativity come out of this and um, it, it'll be interesting to see how this impacts long-term the, the way you're able to do your job and uh, do your work there, it may actually give you expansion models uh, that you would not have considered uh, or may not have adopted as, as soon as, uh, as uh, this brought on. Uh, if I can shift us over now to talking about finance, um, one more question uh, in terms of what are you doing uh, in your own fundraising work right now with your donors and uh, now that you can't get out and do visits and uh, or hold uh, events, which I know are a part of how you do your funding. Um, tell, tell us about what that's like for you right now. Sure, well, we were actually supposed to be on a three week documentary tour with our Kenyan, with three of our Kenyan students and two of our Kenyan staff here in the United States right now. Uh, we have a documentary about three students who climbed Kilimanjaro and the story of Kupenda is told through the lens of these three kids and them overcoming this obstacle of climbing. So obviously that was a real big disappointment for us. We're hoping we can do it in the fall and we'll let you know. We might actually be coming to Washington to oh. this time. And so you're showing the film in churches or movie theaters or we're showing it all kinds of places. Mm -hmm. So some of our churches, we actually were supposed to be part of the Boston Real Abilities Film Festival. Um, and they ended up doing it virtually on the 22nd, which was great. But we were going to be hosted by Gordon College, a, co a Christian college near me. Mm -hmm. uh, was going to actually be the ones that fly them in to come and do a Q&A afterwards to actually ask the kids themselves. So that's wow. obviously a disappointment. And you know, we're, we're a small organization. Uh, we're a small organization with a big impact. Mm -hmm. The last year we benefited the lives of over 40,000 children in five different countries. And so as we're going forward and trying to figure out how to deal with this response and all the nonprofits, I think in the world right now are really scared, not just about their own personal well-being and that of their loved ones, but what is going to happen to my organization that's based on people giving when everyone else is nervous. So in terms of what we're doing is making sure that we are continuing to talk to many of our supporters about what's happening, what we're changing, and also to express sincerely our gratitude for what these supporters have equipped us to do. Because if it wasn't for the supporters over the last 20 years that we've had, being able to build into these community leaders and these families to equip them with the knowledge and the skills to actually do the counseling we need them to do right now, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now. We wouldn't have the people. And so I want them to understand that they're part of why we can do this and asking that they continue on with us. Because I think in the midst of this very dark time, I think that there's a lot of focus on the negativity, which there's a lot of it. But what we want to help people understand is that there's hope. 
is that we know that we actually can save a life. They can be part of saving lives. And I think that's going to give people light. I think it's going to give people hope to know they can make a difference in the life of a child with a disability who is probably poor and probably wouldn't have a chance if it wasn't for their support. And at the same time, what we're being able to do is the models and even the things we've just done in the last week or two as we're trying to adjust what we're doing is we're part of some international um, groups that are working all over the world, groups that are connected, working with World Vision or Catholic Relief Services, very large organizations that are trying to, that are asking, what can we do with disability? And they're saying, we don't have anything, any guidance on what to do with children with disabilities right now in the midst of this crisis. I'm like, well, we just made a two page guidance that we can share with you right now that we're already using with our community. So everything we do in Kenya, we're able to share what's happening with the international community so that they can model it for their kids with disabilities in the communities they're working in. And I believe our impact is exponential because it's hard to track how much of an influence we have. Yes. Because we're doing in that way. Well, and it's, um, it's also the focus that you have that an organization, a very large organization has their foci spread across a, a whole range of pathologies and challenges and to find somebody that knows what they're doing and actually has something that works and that can be adapted into their work is a, is a real boon. So as you're contacting your donors and your supporters, uh, what's their response been? Are, are they staying with you? So far, um, I've been talking to mostly supporters that are probably the, the top level of support that we get. And everyone has said just, and even without me asking it, it's like, just know our, our, our support's not gonna change. We're not gonna stop our giving. So I think that that gives me a lot of confidence. There are some, uh, there are some foundations that are providing emergency grants to deal with some of the COVID-19 response. Mm -hmm. And so we have an amazing development director who's getting on all of that grant writing. And we have that development grant director because of you guys. Um, the support of getting her in the first place. So we're just writing lots of those emergency mm -hmm. grants. She's an amazing yeah. writer. Um, and I'm usually the one talking to the people and then I tell her what we've talked about and then she writes the grant. That's kind yeah. of the system. That's a good system, it. Cynthia. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Okay, so let's just wrap up the uh, the podcast with one last thing, because you mentioned the development effort that we encouraged you with uh, through the Westwood grant, helped you get an executive director. The reason we were bringing this podcast on right now was to talk about what you and Leonard did in Kenya to develop local funding through mm -hmm. that same grant. And so can we just end with that hopeful story about how uh, how that took off and what the what what the impact on Leonard and his team in Kenya was and what the impact on you and uh, your team here was when you uh, tried uh, to do some local funding? Yeah, so 25% of our income last year was actually from Kenyan sources. So on the ground in Kenya, at least 25%. And when I say that, it's because when we invest in them, we do very few brick and mortar projects. We don't build schools, but last year, the community that we were working with, they built a school, which was just open in January. And so they're raising the funds locally. They're also, in addition to funds that are coming through the organization, one of the big things that Leonard feels very strongly about is transforming the government and how they're actually funding things as well. So we've been able to get the government to build vocational schools. We've been able to get them give scholarships to children with disabilities. And we've been able to actually get funding for 
people to actually translate for children that are deaf at schools where they wouldn't have been able to go before, which is what the government is supposed to be doing. And so because of all those efforts, we're actually able to be more sustainable from a community level. So we figure anything we do on this side is an investment that's going to be multiplied. Right. So every dollar we give is going to equate to a dollar fifty in Kenya because they're going to raise money for whatever we're doing. They're going to raise more. And some of it is more difficult to track because um, it's hard to know because all of it does not come through us, which we think is the right way to do it. It doesn't always help us with our books because it's not coming through us, but it is really great to see that it's more sustainable that way. I think one day because of the way we do it, Leonard and I actually have a goal that maybe most people wouldn't quite understand. But we have a goal to be forgotten in the mm. communities in which we work in, because we have done such a, we want to hope that we have done such a good job to transform culture, to transform the governments in which they live and that funding is no longer an issue, that they just take for granted that they actually have the ability to have access to everything that everyone else does. And so we think that this is the best way. So. I think I've been told that getting 25% of our income from local sources is a big deal. To me, it, it was just what was natural to do as their community. Well, two things. Uh, one, uh, having a, a succession plan that says, I want to get be forgotten is mm -hmm. one of the most uh, admirable organizational development goals uh, I think you can establish because it means you're going to be constantly devolving the work to the local leadership, you're going to be uh, encouraging their entrepreneurship, their leadership, uh, you're going to encourage the Cynthia's of their country to, mm -hmm. uh, to get started and get in their own, uh, get into the mix of helping in this issue. Uh, it's a great organizational goal. Um, and one that I think we all should really pay close attention to. Um, and, and one last little part, there was a challenge grant that was given to you that uh, to raise actual cash directly to match the challenge. And why don't you just conclude by telling us how that went and how much Leonard enjoyed that, actually, <laughs> we, we, we learned later. Um, Leonard said it was really helpful for him to have that challenge of having to raise, I think, it was it was a small amount from some people's perspective, but for Kenya, it was quite large. And that not only did they have to raise it, they had to report on it, which was really right. helpful too. And he said, this is motivating for us. And when we're, we see this challenge, it actually shows us we can do it. Yeah. And it's motivated them to continue to do even more because they didn't just, they didn't just raise what they were required to. I think they doubled it actually. From That's what right. I, re I remember that part of the story. And I wanted to include that in this podcast uh, for those of you that are uh, uh, engaged with us right now on this podcast that are givers and or making significant sized grants uh, uh, in terms of the amount of dollars that you're giving to organizations, you can encourage them to develop local funding through the use of challenge grants. And um, Capenda is one example of that. Uh, Cynthia, I'm just really blessed uh, to uh, be talking with you today and to uh, and, and very encouraged uh, by how um, you, you are all reacting to this COVID-19 crisis. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you so much for being a support of this and making this possible. Yeah, it's a privilege.